everyone. You are listening to CCG Global Dialogue podcast with Dr. Henry Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. So I will start、uh, the dialogue today.、Uh, thank you, Anne, and uh, hi, uh, good e- good good morning, and good evening.、Uh, depends every where you are. And、uh, hello, everyone. My name is、uh, Henry、uh, Huiyao Wang. I'm the founder and president of Center for China and Globalization. Welcome to this special dialogue of the sixth China Global Think Tank Innovation Forum, live from CCG head office in Beijing. So thank you for joining us today. We are honored and very pleased、uh, to have Professor Steve Roach with us today. We've been、uh, knowing Professor Steve Roach for many years. Uh, he's really a, a very renowned uh, uh, international expert and also economist on China-U.S. relations and economics. And、uh, this is actually the twentieth episode of、uh, CCG Global Dialogue. So for this year, we've been in dialogue with a number of、uh, world opinion leaders. So as we're approaching to the year end of uh, 2021, it's time for us to reflect. And also to conclude of this year's major、uh, development, achievement, and major events, and trend and uh, uh, future uh, development for the U.S.-China relation and globalization,、uh, of course, for that matter as well. So, before we get into that,、uh, allow me to quickly introduce our guest today.、Uh, Professor Stephen Roach is a renowned economist with a distinguished career spanning nearly five decades. Economic research, finance, and academia. He is currently a senior fellow at the Yale University Jackson Institute of Global Affairs and a senior lecturer at the Yale School of Management. He was formerly chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia in Hong Kong, and also the Morgan Stanley's chief economist in New York. Before that, he, he worked also in Federal Reserve. And started his career at Brookings Institution. I, I was visiting at Brookings one time. We heard your name. His latest book, which actually published not later, but his his recent book was "Unbalanced: The Codependency of America and China,"、uh, examines the risk and opportunities of what is likely to be the world's most important economic relations of the 21st century. I know you. In the last six months, you've been working on another book. Uh, you know,、uh, accidental conflict. Also,、uh, describing, uh, uh, analyzing the、uh, the potential、uh, pros and cons and the potential conflict of China-U.S. relations. So, so we love to hear all of that. So, welcome, Professor Roach. Maybe you can give a bit opening remarks、uh, for 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 having you on this dialogue. Well, thank you very much, <clears throat> Henry, and it's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, and to participate in a CCG、um, a global dialogue、um, program, I've had great admiration for your organization since its inception, and、um, you know I, it's a pleasure to uh, join uh, those who have uh, uh, commented uh, as we near the end of、uh, 2021. I can't help but. Think back a year ago at the end of uh, 2020, uh, and the world looked today than it did、uh, back then. Back in the end of、um, uh, 2020, we we were still
uh, in shock over the uh, outbreak of uh, the COVID-19 uh, global pandemic. The world had, had come back, at least started to come back, but many, myself included, were skeptical uh, of the staying power of the economic rebound. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we were continue, uh, continued to express uh, some concern about uh, the aftershocks uh, of uh, the pandemic. Um, as the year came to an end um, uh, in the United States, where um, uh, I continue to be right now, uh, we were uh, in a very difficult um, uh, period between uh, the Trump administration uh, and uh, the then incoming uh, administration of Joe Biden. There was a lot of controversy after our presidential election, and some of that controversy, unfortunately, uh, uh, remains uh, uh, a factor today. But there was a lot of hope that um, as we transitioned from um, uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration, that there would be a dramatic uh, change and improvement uh, in the US-China uh, relationship. Uh, that has not happened. And that's been a surprise uh, to uh, many uh, people. And so, you know, as we sit here uh, at the end of 2021, uh, and uh, we continue to see um, significant conflict on many fronts with respect to uh, the United States and China, whether it's trade, uh, technology, uh, or uh, even, uh, you know, escalating rhetoric that many believe is reminiscent of a Cold War type of conflict, uh, there's good reason to worry about uh, the future of the U.S.-China uh, conflict. The U.S. economy has um, uh, performed um, very well uh, uh, over the, the past year. Uh, our unemployment rate has fallen more sharply in the last 12 months than in any 12-month period uh, in modern history. Um, but, you know, we, we always have uh, you know, things to worry about. That's, that's why we're called economists. We practice uh, the, the dismal science, and so we, we are uh, programmed to worry. And in the U.S., we're worried because uh, we've had an outbreak uh, of fairly significant inflationary pressures that um, has taken a lot of people by surprise, especially uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, and it looks to us like um, they're going to have to tighten monetary policy uh, to limit uh, the acceleration of inflation uh, and do that a good deal sooner than they had anticipated. And so that raises questions about 2022, um, especially with respect to the financial uh, uh, markets where uh, the stock market and the bond market have enjoyed uh, extraordinary support uh, from easy money for a long, long time. And if the Federal Reserve 
uh, begins a, a sooner than expected uh, monetary tightening, then that support will be drawn into question. Meanwhile, in your country, um, you know, the Chinese economy has slowed um, uh, after an extraordinary recovery uh, from uh, COVID-19 uh, in uh, the final three quarters of uh, 2020. Um, but, um, you know, you have a new problem that is uh, personified by the, um, uh, the significant pressures that have been um, uh, brought to bear on uh, Evergrande, your second largest uh, property developer company with uh, a company that has a huge overhang of some $300 billion of debt. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, the Chinese government has moved uh, aggressively and understandably in recent years uh, to um, reduce the debt intensity of your economy. Uh, this so-called deleveraging campaign uh, is important. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been um, uh, underway now in one form or another. Uh, for the past five years uh, to make certain that China uh, does not go down the road that Japan did uh, in the 1990s uh, when it was um, uh, brought to a state of virtual stagnation uh, after its own uh, serious um, debt-intensive uh, uh, burst of economic growth that led to asset bubbles, which then burst uh, and brought the Japanese economy into a three-decade-plus period of stagnation, uh, where it still is mired today. So in an effort to avoid a Japanese-like outcome, uh, deleveraging has become a high priority of the Chinese government. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the government, as it's doing with Evergrande, stays with uh, its focus on deleveraging to prevent a Japanese-like uh, outcome. So, you know, the, the Chinese economy, I think, is um, still in relatively good shape. Uh, it, can, it will withstand the Evergrande uh, problems um, much better than uh, many observers in the West believe the U.S. economy is also in pretty good shape, um, uh, but it will need to address uh, its inflation problem. Uh, the biggest risk in the two economies is not their own economies, but the conflict that has arisen uh, between them. Uh, and so um, I'm hopeful as I look to 2022 that um, both nations can come together uh, in a spirit of conflict resolution uh, rather than in a spirit of conflict escalation. And that will require uh, major steps on the part of leaders uh, in both nations. Uh, and um, uh, we can only hope that they have um, uh, the wisdom uh, to do that. So why don't I stop at that point uh, and uh, turn it back to you, Henry. Yeah, th thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you for these uh, uh, excellent opening remarks. I think 
uh, you outlined uh, uh, what's going on in the U.S. economy uh, uh, is, is also uh, getting uh, better. Of course, China has uh, <clears throat> achieved uh, a quite substantial uh, uh, growth of its GDP in the uh, first three quarters, but also you outlined potential risk of, uh, of uh, Evergrande. It's kind of a dead, <clears throat> dead issue. But also, <laughs> I agree with you. The most probably... Uh, uh, the you know the danger and risk is this potential conflict uh, that, that that you 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 mentioned. So so what do you think about this? Uh, you know we we have Biden now in the office for almost exactly and uh, since he won the election almost <laughs> exactly one year now, and we had uh, you know uh, how much that is is different from President Trump. How much he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the business community's expectation, and also, of course, the, the general society uh, uh, of China-U.S. relations uh, uh, expectation that he has uh, uh, delivered or not. And uh, I mean, we see him uh, suffer a bit on, on the appealing polls, and uh, and also, of course, uh, uh, now we have this. Uh, uh, he's having the democracy uh, summit. I mean, uh, tomorrow. And uh, and today he met uh, President Putin virtually. But last month he met President Xi virtually as well. So we see a, a, a host of issues going on. I mean, since since the March uh, meeting of Alaska between top diplomats between China and U.S. So where do you see this uh, U.S.-China relationship go? And what do you think about the business impact? And uh, also that also goes to the pandemic fighting. Uh, you know, climate change co cooperation, but also, after all, I think the business is the back back door, you know, back pillar of, of our bilateral relations. So, so that is also affected by this uh, uh, tense relations. So, so what what what's your analysis of the Trump administration uh, past, now, and future? And also, he could, you know, we're having a midterm election next year. He's facing all kind of a uh, uh, challenge, but also he has managed to pass the infrastructure bill and. Uh, so at least to have something going on. So how do you assess that? Well, it's it's sort of interesting, Henry, to think about uh, what President Biden has done. Um, you're right, the election was a year ago, but he's only been in office now uh, for about uh, nine and a half months. Uh, and, uh, you know, it seems like uh, a much longer period of time, but, uh, you know, he's still a, a, a very new uh, president. But um, what was particularly interesting is on the first day he took office, January 20th, um, 2021, he signed, I think, uh, 14 executive orders that reversed many of the most unpopular uh, policies that uh, President Trump um, had put into place. You know, the border wall with Mexico, uh, the immigration issue, the ban on uh, Muslim travel. Uh, he joined, um, uh, rejoined uh, the, the Paris Agreement on climate change. He rejoined the World Health Organization. Uh, virtually uh, almost any of, of Trump's most unpopular uh, positions were reversed uh, in uh, the very first day of the Biden administration, except for one thing, his view on China. 
uh, he has not changed uh, the Trump administration uh, policy with respect to China. The tariffs are still in place. Uh, the uh, sanctions on uh, a large number of Chinese technology companies uh, are still in place. Uh, and um, there continues to be a very difficult and tough rhetoric. If anything, it's escalated uh, over uh, you know, human rights and territorial issues from Taiwan to the South China Sea. You mentioned the, um, the meeting in Anchorage uh, at the end of March. Um, th that meeting was a disaster. Uh, you had senior foreign officials in both countries um, talking as if uh, we truly were uh, in a Cold War. Uh, and um, you have to ask yourself, why did uh, President Biden change so many policies, but leave um, the, uh, the Trump administration uh, policy in place with respect to China? And I think it boils down to another point that you mentioned, Henry, and that is that pre pre President Biden uh, is certainly, um, you know, has a, a major problem in the public opinion polls in the United States right now. His uh, approval rating is exceptionally low for a newly inaugurated president. Usually we give our new presidents what they call a honeymoon period where their popularity goes way up uh, and uh, they enjoy broad bipartisan uh, support. Uh, for President Biden, the honeymoon was the shortest on record. And, um, you know, whether it's the ongoing problems of, with COVID, um, you know, the very contentious debate over vaccine uh, and mask mandates, um, the, the inflation problem that I mentioned earlier, um, some of the uh, racial issues in the United States, whatever it is, his um, approval rating uh, is, you know, at an extremely low level. I think only about 40% of Americans approve of the, the job that he's doing, uh, which is too bad uh, because, um, uh, you know, he's he's got a <clears throat> very thin majority in the U.S. Congress and there's very little uh, given the thin majority he has that he can actually do. Uh, and the fact that he has um, enacted um, this uh, large infrastructure uh, plan earlier on a bipartisan basis is a, a fairly significant accomplishment. But, you know, the final uh, point I'd make in response to your question is that uh, you know, we, we have a lot of polarization in the United States right now. The Republicans do not agree with anything the Democrats stand for, and the Democrats don't agree with anything that the Republicans stand for. But the two parties are united on one issue, and that is their concern and their negative view on China. Uh, the uh, 
the, the Pew Research Organization uh, in um, Washington conducts a poll twice a year on uh, American sentiment uh, toward China. Uh, and it's now at a record low, uh, almost you know matching uh, the uh, level of a negative sentiment uh, that the American public has uh, toward um, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and if you look at the detail in the poll, uh, it's Republicans and Democrats. It's old people, it's young people, it's college educated, it's those who did not go to college. It's widespread. Uh, and that's that's too bad. Uh, I think it's um, based on a number of um, uh, incorrect impressions that Americans have formed with respect to China, which motivated me to write um, the book that I have been working on uh, for the past six months, uh, because I think there are a number of false impressions that Americans have with respect to China. And I think there are a number of false impressions that the Chinese um, uh, leaders and the Chinese public may have with respect to the United States as well. And these false impressions uh, can lead to um, what my working title of the book concludes is a state of accidental conflict, the conflict that didn't have to happen, but it has happened. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the negative sentiment in America toward China, uh, again, bipartisan in support, together with President Biden's own uh, very low approval ranking, uh, is what keeps him and prevents him uh, from really changing uh, the Trump administration's policy with respect to China. Uh, he's at a, a pretty low point in the, uh, the public opinion uh, polling cycle. And, um, you know, I think his political advisors say, why take on an issue uh, where uh, there is such widespread support uh, for staying tough uh, on China? And so <clears throat> I think President Biden is, um, uh, you know, reluctant to risk political capital by changing uh, policies uh, that I think um, were were wrong uh, as established by the Trump administration. And so the challenge is to figure out what in, uh, it will take uh, to uh, bring this conflict to an end in this context. Yeah, uh, thank you, <clears throat> thank you, uh, Steve, for your for your assessment there. Yeah, you're you're right. I think that uh, wh what I can see is that from four years uh, Trump in the office, he has really uh, 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 brought down these uh, four decades of uh, uh, relatively stable uh, Sino-U.S. relations. I mean, he actually um, made these. Uh, uh, you know, he has actually projected China as. Uh, as uh, as uh, take advantage of U.S. and uh, you know the, the, here and there, uh, all those accusations and, uh, and so so even though Trump Trump is uh, left has left office, but Trumpism is still very strong. 
One other thing I'm thinking is, of course, uh, you know, I mean, the, the U.S. and China on the business side, there's a, there's enormous business for the U.S. China in the last four decades. Uh, for example, you probably you are the expert on that. You know, for the last uh, four decades, there's there's about seventy thousand U.S. company has set up in China, making seven hundred billion <laughs> revenue a year in China. I mean. Uh, uh, you know, just Apple alone make 50 billion uh, a year in China. So, so uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and Qualcomm makes 60% of its business in China. So, I mean, I just been to the uh, Universal Studio here in Beijing. Uh, it's been packed with, uh, uh, you know, flooded with tourists uh, during the national holidays. And uh, uh, it's just, uh, uh, they, they, they are open the largest Universal Studio in the world in Beijing. And it's all, has just opened one third of it. In Beijing, so they're going, to, they're going to continue to expand here. Of course, Tesla is doing uh, marvelous well, and uh, Tesla, you know, almost become the largest company because they have this uh, new technology, a new uh, clean vehicle, uh, big manufacturer based in China. So, so, so I see all the good sense of uh, of uh, you know relationship. Uh, for example, in the last four uh, uh, you know decades, four million Chinese students went to the United States. And uh, the, the and and the three million <laughs> tourists went to the United States every year uh, before pandemic. So, uh, so that that kind of narrative is is not there. But but the U.S. economy is suffering, and uh, and then China often take all the blame. One of the issues I'm 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 thinking is that, for example, we we see this uh, uh, the you know this top elite at the one percent is really getting very uh, uh, even though during the pandemic their wealth is still increasing. We're middle class. You know, for the last thirty years, is is, is stagnated and, and 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 zero increase. So, so do you think that uh, uh, with all those uh, dissatisfied uh, uh, middle class, dissatisfied uh, blue collars, and uh, they constantly, continuously voting anti-globalization, anti-China politician to the Congress, and then they actually form the bipartisan, and China would be the easiest uh, scapegoat for. For for the domestic policy of U.S., for example, how does it handle the widening gap between rich and poor? So so what do you think about that? Because uh, it, it it's not right, you know, all the domestic issues, China become <laughs> the, the the scapegoat on that. But of course, China has uh, has its problem too, but but not really affecting U.S. that much. And uh, so so it seems very ironically to see, uh, you know, they they all formed the. Uh, these uh, uh, negative opinions on China, but uh, but after all, China is doing, you know, very well. KPI wise, is probably one of the best in the world, and uh, contributed over one third of global GDP and uh, lifted eight hundred million people out of poverty. Ten years ahead of time, realized UNDP UN uh, sustainable SDG number one objective. So, so what do you think? I mean, now they are also comparing the democracy now. So, USA is having democracy summit. China just had a democracy forum itself. So it's interesting to see on this democracy forum, you know, all compare the bottom line and and, and how how effective the the implementation and and the KPI. Let's let's compare KPI. So so what do you think about all those uh, uh, arguments that uh, we will see in the in the, in the uh, you know in the societies? Yeah. Well, you you touch on a lot of um uh, uh, difficult uh, yet very important uh, issues, Henry. But I, I just want to pick up on you know, a couple of strands and, and, and tie them uh, together. Um, you're, you're right that we have a serious 
problem in the United States um, with uh, income and wealth inequality. And it's gotten worse uh, in recent years. We're not alone uh, in that. There's been problems of rising uh, wealth and income inequality around the world. And in fact, uh, President Xi Jinping has made this a centerpiece of his own campaign starting this summer uh, for uh, restoring a common prosperity, which is all about uh, dealing with uh, inequality uh, that has been uh, a growing and worrisome problem in China as well. But the, the point you made um, when you started this line of question is, is a very important one, and that is that um, in the United States, the politicians have turned this problem uh, into um, blaming it on China. Uh, and the, the logic goes something like this. Uh, the American middle class has been damaged because of a large and growing trade deficit. And the biggest piece of that deficit is with China. Uh, I think the numbers were um, as recently as 2016, uh, China accounted for about 48% of the total merchandise trade deficit. And, and the final piece of the argument that was made um, uh, by earlier administrations, but especially by the Trump administration, was that the Chinese trade deficit is an outgrowth of unfair trading practices that you know go back to allegations that are made with respect to um, uh, technology transfer, industrial policy, innovation policy. And so the, the narrative that's come out of this is that the American middle class has been squeezed because China cheats. And therefore, uh, the, uh, the US administration is justified uh, in imposing steep tariffs on China. Uh, and you know, I've analyzed this story for a number of years and uh, most of it is, is, is false. There are some elements of, um, of, of truth to some of the allegations, but let's just look at the trade piece, for example. Um, the U.S. does have a large uh, trade deficit uh, with China, although it has gotten a good deal smaller since the tariffs were imposed in 2018. But the plain fact of the matter is that the data from our own U.S. Department of Commerce uh, indicates that we have trade deficits um, in any given year with roughly 100 different countries. We have a multilateral problem, not a bilateral problem with China. Uh, and the multilateral problem reflects the fact that as a nation, we do not save 
And the economics are very clear. It, when you don't save and you want to grow, you import surplus saving from abroad and you run a big deficit on your balance of payments or your current account to attract the foreign capital. And that's what gives rise to a multilateral trade deficit. You can't address the multilateral trade deficit by making, um, uh, you know, uh, or starting a trade war on a bilateral basis. If you do that, but you don't raise your level of national savings, then the um, the deficit that you um, uh, that you attack through tariffs just gets diverted somewhere else, and that's exactly what's happened. We've lowered our trade deficit with China because of Trump's tariffs, but the overall trade deficit has gotten considerably bigger because it's been offset by increased uh, deficits with a large number of countries, uh, such as you know Mexico, Vietnam. Uh, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore. Uh, and so we're, we're shifting the Chinese portion of our trade deficit to higher cost uh, trading partners, which tragically uh, are um, uh, uh, putting a, a pressure uh, on American businesses and consumers. You're entirely right, Henry. Uh, over the last 35 years, uh, trade uh, and growing business ties between our two nations has been the anchor of the U.S.-China relationship. But the Trump administration pulled up the anchor, uh, and that uh, has backfired. It's based on bad economics uh, and uh, destructive uh, politics. Uh, and what worries me is that the Biden administration, by staying with the same policy of the Trump administration, this so-called phase one trade deal that was um, uh, agreed upon by uh, the two countries um, uh, in January of 2020, Biden doesn't want to change it. My advice is to tear it up. Uh, that deal is a destructive deal. There's a better way to address our differences uh, than, than that. Uh, and it's uh, an outgrowth of um, bad economics trying to fix a multilateral problem through a bilateral uh, uh, trade deficit. It won't work. It won't work in theory. Uh, and it hasn't worked in practice. Yeah, thank you, uh, Steve. I think that uh, actually you outlined very uh, clearly, I think, uh, all those uh, misconceptions and uh, actually the narrative uh, in the U.S. actually, uh, uh, you know, has, has been shifted on China negatively uh, because of this uh, uh, probably uh, uh, uncorrect uh, uh, and, you know, accurate uh, uh, assessment of this uh, deficit. You know, China Henry, can I just say, can I just say, sure. add one more thing? Yeah. We did the same thing 30 years ago with Japan. In the 1980s, when we first had a trade problem, we discovered that the biggest piece of the trade deficit then was Japan. 
So we blamed Japan. Uh, and uh, uh, Japan made a number of, um, of uh, mistakes in responding to U.S. pressure that uh, have led to serious problems in the Japanese economy. Chinese leaders have studied uh, the Japanese precedent, and they know full well that what, what we're doing by blaming China right now is almost identical to what we did in blaming uh, Japan uh, in the 1980s. And, you know, the, uh, America has a hard time facing up uh, to its own responsibilities. It's much easier to blame others. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, thank you, uh, uh, Steve. Uh, absolutely, I, I, I can't agree more with your <clears throat> assessment that multilateral deficit, uh, using a bilateral deficit approach to, 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 to tackle it is not really a right approach. I mean, you're right. I mean, since the trade war, <laughs> we see the neighboring countries like uh, Vietnam become uh, the large, <laughs> hugely increase. ASEAN become a large trading partner with China because, you know, a lot of things China going, used to go out from China now go from ASEAN. So ASEAN suddenly become the largest trading partner with China as well. And also, you know, this kind of deficit concept is not really uh, analyzed uh, scientifically because a lot of, you know, uh, uh, product made in China, but uh, uh, the price was uh, calculated on China. But, you know, China didn't, you know, only made the labor costs on that. So and not, not, not counting those services that uh, U.S. has a huge uh, uh, plus. So we, we, I mean, probably China, but also U.S., we haven't really got these numbers correct. Whereas Trump was simply, oh, 300 billion deficit on China, whatever. That got uh, very, very widely spread. So, so that, as you're right, that built up the uh, 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 concept of, uh, you know, China is taking advantage. But I think it's time now. We, we, you know, we, we need a realistic assessment. We need to, you know, change that concept. And really coming to solving this uh, uh, key problem. I noticed that uh, President Biden, uh, you know, proposed this uh, global uh, uh, flat corporate in income tax, uh, you know, corporate tax, you know, G20 and then 130 countries of that. So probably those are the way, you know, instead of a lot of companies make money overseas, you know, maybe they could repatriate back to, 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 to lift to the Midwest or Rusty Belt. And rather than, you know, money are stayed overseas, then, the U.S. company hasn't got a really effective policy to handle those domestic issues, and then China really become a, a, a scapegoat. So, so, so I think there's a lot of a uh, way to do, uh, to go ahead on those problem. But you are absolutely right. You know, you know, uh, Biden is tariff uh, uh, tactic is is really important because after all, I think this uh, competitive advantage is still, <laughs> uh, you know, David Ricardo's this uh, series still valid. Like now, you during this pandemic time. We see the U.S. port paralyzed almost, and then huge uh, containers from China, uh, you know, uh, can can be loaded and 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 uh, supply the market. So, so China is really, um, you know, uh, hasn't really probably make that clear. But what do you see the uh, the future uh, pass out of this uh, <laughs> crisis or, or whatever trade tariff war we have? How we can get out of that uh, uh, gradually? Well, you know, I, I express the view that they, uh, from the U.S. side, um, there are enormous political pressures on President Biden 
to stay tough on China. But, um, you know, leadership is, is, is tricky. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we have all these um, public opinion polls that seem to guide every step that uh, politicians take. Uh, and yet, you know, at the end of the day, leaders uh, succeed when they have the courage to take uh, tough steps that don't necessarily agree with um, the short-term uh, polling results. So, you know, if, if you ask me what uh, President Biden should do, which is not something that he has asked me, by the way, so um, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, tell you that um, uh, I'm, I'm not in communication uh, with his uh, China team, at least directly. I, I certainly am through what I what I write and how I speak. Um, I, I think the, the the biggest issues that need to be addressed are many of the tough structural issues that, in fact, were raised by the Trump administration. Uh, not necessarily raised on the best of evidence, but issues that uh, ultimately are important to the long-term competitiveness uh, and prosperity of both countries. And so things like innovation policy, uh, technology transfer, uh, subsidies to state-owned enterprises, um, cybersecurity, uh, the um, uh, uh, monopolies uh, of uh, the, the issues that are addressed through outbound and incoming merger and acquisition activity. Um, these are all really important uh, issues where there is a good deal of disagreement uh, between uh, the two countries. And um, I would prefer to see us uh, really focus on developing uh, a framework to address the structural issues rather than the bilateral uh, trade issues, which are an outgrowth of our macroeconomic savings imbalances. And what I write about in my uh a book that um, will be coming out shortly, I hope, uh, is a framework to address the structural issues uh, by going back to the bargaining table uh, and negotiating a bilateral investment treaty. Uh, we were negotiating a bilateral investment treaty between the U.S. and China for about 10 years until Trump uh, came into office in 2017, and he, you know, he stopped. Uh, and um, we were uh, probably 90 to 95% of the way uh, complete. A bilateral investment treaty is important because it focuses on um, economic growth of two partners who can increase their access into each other's markets, uh, provided that access uh, is negotiated uh, and um, underwritten uh, by strong legally binding agreements. 
And we were, again, 90 to 95% of the way there. Uh, and I think if we go back to that framework, uh, we will be much more effective in resolving the major structural differences uh, between our two uh, economies uh, and do so in a pro-growth win-win uh, framework. Uh, the, the trade war is lose-lose. Uh, the tech war is lose-lose. A new Cold War is lose-lose. So we need a new framework, Henry. And by staying with the framework that we've been engaged in uh, for the last um, uh, four years of the Trump administration and the first uh, nine to 10 months of the Biden administration, uh, we're going to stay in this um, uh, condition of lose-lose. Uh, and we've got to come up with a new framework. And I write about this in this uh, new book. Yeah, excellent. I think, uh, Steve, you have uh, proposed uh, excellent ideas. I, I, I think this, uh, this uh, as you said, this, <laughs> this bilateral uh, investment treaty in uh, 2016, when they had the G20, uh, is almost uh, uh, signed then. You know, I, 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 our, our senior advisor, uh, former Vice Minister Zhu Guangyao, our Minister of Finance, actually, was calling the G20, uh, uh, you know, meetings uh, at, uh, at the financial ministry. And then he was telling me, you know, it was almost done. He almost said at the television, we're going to sign this before the G20 in Hangzhou uh, that year. So, so uh, absolutely, we need a framework to, 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 to really, uh, you know, engage the dialogues. Rather than now, we, we are seeing the, uh, the U.S. keep adding the entity list. Even by President Biden comes out, we see uh, a, a number of more entity lists added to the to the to the to the sanction list, and that yeah. actually jeopardizes the jeopardizes the uh, not only hurting Chinese business but also hurting U.S. business. For example, those uh, semiconductor and all those chips now you cannot buy from U.S. It's a huge loss to U.S. That's created this uh, shortage of uh, chips. Many automobiles, many uh, computers are not, not able to be manufactured at, 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 at old style uh, pace. It's actually a, a lot of shortage and, and, and things like that. And also further, uh, it, will, it will really cripple probably the international uh, semiconductor industry. And then you, you, you have that you know, hurting the both world economy and U.S., China as well. So, so what do you think, you know, the way that we can really, uh, uh, you know, work together? I mean, of course, this... Uh, this investment treaty is an excellent idea. I think we should really come back to that, and we should really, uh, you know, do more on the, on the, on, on those issues. Uh, the other thing I was uh, thinking was, uh, now, what are the next biggest draw? What are the next biggest pie that uh, all the countries can have a share of that? Uh, uh, last week, uh, the EU uh, announced uh, your gate, three hundred billion euro, going to be spent on the infrastructure. President Trump passed uh, 1.2 trillion on the on the infrastructure. China has done its BI for infrastructure for the last eight years. So this is the biggest, uh, probably next uh, 50 years uh, of uh, big incentive for the world to, to come together to upgrade our infrastructure. And uh, China, uh, US, US have this B, B3W, Build Back Better World, and uh, EU, this gateway uh, EU. So what do you think, you know, Climate change, of course, is one area. Uh, you know, pandemic fighting is another area. China has pledged billions of uh, dollars. The uh, U.S. has pledged billions. And uh, 
uh, vaccines and donations. So, but we should have a coordinated effort. Find something, you know, with with common interest of the world, and the two largest economies should really work together. So, what do you think about new initiative that can bring us together? Of course, CPTPP is uh, is another angle designed by the U.S. Now, China is waiting to join that. Minister of Commerce has put CPP agreement on the Ministry MoveCom website to, to, to show to the Chinese company, here is the standards, here is the target you should shoot for. So, so U.S. was helping design that. You know, let's talk on those terms. Why not U.S. is not coming back to CPTPP and uh, let's, let's work on the BI and B3W and let's work on the, on the pandemic fighting. So, what are the big incentives for us to work together rather than we, as you said, lose, lose, lose uh, for all the decoupling stuff? Yeah, look, um, you, you make a good point, Henry. And I think <clears throat> there's, there are a number of areas uh, of <clears throat> mutual interest with global impact that um, these two major powers um, have enormous incentives to work together. And I would just highlight three of them. Uh, you mentioned probably, you know, many more than that. But to me, the, the ones that are the most important and the ones that provide the greatest opportunity are global climate change, global health, and uh, cyber security. And, you know, of those three areas, I think um, the only area I can point to where we seem to be um, working together somewhat is uh, climate change, especially uh, at the COP26 conference when um, uh, there was um, a joint statement announced at the end of um, COP26 by the U.S. and China that uh, didn't really contain any new dramatic breakthroughs, but it did contain a joint commitment. And that's exactly what the type of thing you need. Uh, on global health, um, you know, this has been an enormous opportunity uh, for the two countries to work together to deal with uh, an absolutely horrible uh, pandemic. But, you know, in the United States, um, we focused more on uh, the COVID origins debate uh, and on blaming China for a global pandemic. And that's prevented us from the type of collaborative research uh, and scientific uh, discovery and sharing of public health practices uh, that we need to really address this uh, uh, issue uh, globally. And I think, um, you know, in the cybersecurity area, um, we're nowhere uh, in terms of really working together uh, to address uh, the major issues, whether they're, you know, ransomware or uh, cyber-related espionage uh, or cyber hacking. Uh, this is a global issue. It's not just an issue uh, in the United States or an issue in, in China. It's an issue 
that affects um, you know you know all all nations who are now uh, operating in the um, cyber age and an open architecture uh, global internet uh, platform. So there's a lot we can do. Um, I would just say one other thing, and I developed this point also uh, in, in in my book. Um, not only do we need a new framework to address structural issues, but we need to find a new way of managing the dialogue between our nations. I was very pleased to see that um, President Biden and President Xi had a virtual summit um, last month. But we, we need more than just, you know, uh, two leaders sitting, you know, in front of computer screens, you know, every six months or, you know, when they can travel again, uh, you know, having dinner together or something like that. Um, I have proposed that the two nations establish a permanent secretariat uh, that it would be an office staffed by a large number of high-level uh, professionals from China and the United States uh, that would um, uh, work in a jointly in an office in a neutral uh, nation, call it Switzerland, if you want. Uh, and they work full time on all aspects of the U.S.-China uh, relationship, from uh, you know some of the trade. Uh, and tariff issues, to the technology issues, to um, health and climate and cyber. Uh, and um, they develop a joint uh, proposals for, uh, uh, for policy, joint databases, uh, and they manage uh, disputes that arise uh, between uh, the two nations over agreements that they have uh, signed into law. Um, this relationship is too important to leave to, you know, a meeting that takes place, you know, once a year or twice a year, even before COVID, when we had the strategic and economic dialogue, that was only once a year under uh, Obama, twice a year uh, under uh, Bush. That's not enough. We need a full-time secretariat to really raise the level of engagement to the level it needs to be at to avoid conflict. Um, and that's an important part of my win-win conflict resolution prescription that I write about. If I tell you more, though, you won't buy the book. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Steve. Excellent uh, the proposal. I think you, you, you've done really uh, very well on that. Uh, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, this bilateral relation is so important. It's the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And it, it warrants a special office, a special uh, department to really look at that special office that you said full-time, coordinating all aspects of the Sino-U.S. relations and meet regularly, not just a, a summit between the two presidents, but maybe regularly on the quarterly basis and, uh, and, uh, and, and maybe travel to meet in person. I absolutely think that that is really important. We need to emphasize because, it's, you know, 
the two countries' relation really impact not only two countries, but also the world. So if there's two uh, bilateral uh, uh, special uh, U.S. office on China, China office on U.S., can really set up and coordinate all the aspects of bilateral relation. That would be well, really Wait, great. Henry, Henry, just to clarify, I don't want two separate offices. I want one office in a neutral country where every day Chinese professionals come to work alongside their American counterparts. They work together in one office, which is why I call it a secretariat. It's not uh, two silos operating separately. It's an integrated approach to joint um, resolution of areas and issues of mutual interest. And I think um, that would be far better than having, um, uh, you know, the U.S. side develop its own view, the Chinese side develop its own view, and then they meet, uh, they come together. I want them to be together on a full-time basis. Oh, that's that's even further. Of course, uh, maybe let's have a G two office in both countries, and then let's mix with the staff and and meet regularly, daily, if not, if not weekly. So, so that's a good idea. I think that I absolutely do. You know, we we need to really increase in uh, intensity, uh, communication, dialogue, and proposal exchanges, not in related to both countries, but to the world. Uh, that's a, a marvelous idea. Uh, regarding the area of uh, collaborating, I have one more uh, question to to ask. Is that uh, now? U.S. is the largest digital economy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, China is the second largest. You know, thirty-eight percent of China's GDP now relates to digital economy. So, on the digital economy, digital infrastructure, and the WTO minister meeting, you know, I mean, it's postponed, but but still, digital uh, agreement still hasn't been uh, reached. Uh, but that is actually we are we are all digitalized. Uh, but the, the international rules and regulations, go, uh, digital governance. Digital infrastructure is still here and there missing, but China and the U.S. being the two largest digital economy, how how about that area that we come together, set some standards and uh, in a stimulus for the world, and helping uh, uh, other countries, the other countries to to go uh, digital. I mean, Internet Plus. I mean, uh, you said absolutely right. You know, we have to be uh, cybersecurity. We we need to work together. But digital economy, uh, to that matter, you know, uh, how can we work on that? And also currency too, you know, digital payment. China now is already, we, we don't use wallet, uh, wallet or cash anymore. We, we just use our phone. But what about other countries? How can we you know, uh, you know, get the efficiency of payment system and things like that? And uh, so what do you think of uh, uh, those areas on the digital or digital payment? Well, it's, it's critical again, that we <clears throat> think about the digitization of economic um, uh, activity from a, um, a collaborative uh, and actually from a, a global point of view. And as the world's two largest um, digital economies, um, this is my third area of mutual interest that I emphasize uh, in, in my new book that, um, uh, would be of enormous potential for the United States and China to develop and um, uh, work together. And it requires, uh, uh, you know, the type of ongoing full-time collaboration 
that I alluded to earlier when I spoke about my proposal for a secretariat. We need to set up uh, bilateral working groups that meet on a regular basis uh, to examine uh, areas like um, uh, privacy, uh, data security. Uh, and I would say one of the most um, difficult areas uh, that needs to be addressed is <coughs> Uh, the free flow of global information. And this would be a very difficult issue for China because of its strict uh, regime of uh, information control. And so once you get into this area, you open up a lot of issues that are very important uh, to, to all countries, uh, but they also touch on some highly sensitive issues uh, in in China, uh, and I think this will be a very difficult uh, issue for China to address as well. But um, it needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you, thank you, Steve. Uh, we're now almost coming to the end, and uh, uh, my staff was mentioned to me that uh, we uh, through the uh, CCG live portal and other social media, we have about forty thousand people uh, also joined us online and. Uh, so it's great dialogue, but we have actually uh, two questions from uh, uh, because uh, China news agency knows that we're having a dialogue with you. So they propose two questions to you. I, I just read them out. The first question is that uh, in terms of economic and trade relations, what do you think of the concept of recoupling in China-U.S. economy and trade relation put forward by by Kathleen Chai, actually the the USTR? In the past few years, has the two countries really decoupled? Uh, that's the uh, question one. Question two is that, uh, in your opinion, what's the biggest misunderstanding and mis big biggest misjudgment uh, of China by some people in the United States? And why does the misunderstanding seems to deepen in recent years? So <laughs> two uh, Chinese media questions. <clears throat> well, okay. Um... Uh, the, U the new U.S. trade ambassador, uh, Catherine Tai, has um, actually said very little on um, the Biden administration's um, uh, China trade policy. She did give a, uh, a long-awaited speech um, a couple of months ago, uh, but it was not one that really broke any new ground, nor did it uh, really propose a new approach. Uh, and that was, that was disappointing to me. Um, you know, the, the Biden administration promised a very careful review of um, uh, Trump administration uh, policy uh, in the first six months of uh, 2021. Uh, and uh, when the U.S. Trade Representative Tai spoke, uh, presumably after this review had been concluded, um, there wasn't really much that she, she offered that gave me the confidence that, that this was a fresh new approach to addressing a deepening conflict. And as we've already talked about uh, earlier, Henry, um, you know, by keeping these tariffs 
in place at the level they are at right now um, is an enormous tax on American companies and on American consumers. Uh, it has diverted trade away from China uh, toward uh, other countries, but it's done nothing to resolve uh, the large trade deficit, which politicians uh, fear is taking such a toll on American uh, workers. Uh, we, the, the two nations are, uh, over the years, become heavily dependent on each other. Uh, and I've written about this uh, for a number of years. I've, I've called it codependency, where the U.S. depends on China and China depends on the U.S. And, um, you know, that that condition still exists, but, but the trade war is um, unwinding uh, that relationship. And um, uh, but it's it's still a very deep one. And um, let's hope that, you know, we can get, uh, you know, a, a, a better approach. In terms of the second question, the biggest misconception is the one that I addressed earlier. And that is that, that the American middle class has been led to believe incorrectly that it is suffering um, stagnation in its real wages because of China. Uh, and uh, that view has been examined very carefully by a number of uh, academics, including myself. Unfortunately, many academics, you know, have concluded that's true. And with all due respect, I have to say they're wrong uh, because of the simple point I made to you earlier, Henry. Uh, just like we had with Japan 30 years ago. Uh, we had a similar state of affairs with China um, uh, as the largest piece of a, of a, a growing uh, trade deficit. But this was much more a reflection of America's own problems of weak saving, uh, which are getting worse because of the big budget deficits we have right now, rather than. Um, you know, a problem with, you know, Japan 30 years ago or China uh, today. And yet, you know, the politicians uh, in Washington, who are responsible, by the way, for our budget deficits, uh, would rather blame other countries for problems that they have created. And that has led to a major misconception in the United States with respect to the role that China plays uh, in affecting uh, middle-class, hardworking American workers. Yeah, great. <laughs> so uh, thank you, uh, uh, Steve, that I think we have uncovered a very wide ranging of uh, uh, topic this morning uh, and this evening. And uh, we, we talk about, uh, you know, Sino-U.S. relations, the, the 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 latest development. You know, from uh, President uh, uh, Trump to President Biden, uh, what are the uh, uh, misconception and uh, what are the potential conflict, accidental conflict, and your new book. But also, uh, we talked about uh, you know what are the areas uh, can be cooperated, and also uh, you know the the what are the biggest uh, mis 
conception that uh, you just outlined. I think we have covered a wide range. You are such a you know uh, excellent uh, uh, you know uh, analyst of, of, of China-U.S. relations. I mean, we we benefit very often of your wisdom and and your recommendation, uh, and in particular like your idea of we set up a, a special office, you know, <laughs> mixed by two. Uh, working level, uh, uh, high level officials, so that we can really regularly meet and uh, discuss and propose, so that we can really uh, clear up a lot of uh, uh, misunderstanding, but also putting up new proposals, gradually reshape this narrative, and also maybe finding the real problem that we can tackle with, so that we don't blame each other uh, on, on the issues. So, so, uh, so this is really great. We are. Uh, we are we are having a, 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 a you know a special <laughs> chair section coming up uh, in the next uh, twenty minutes. So so before you go, your your last word and uh, uh, your 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 view for the next year. Uh, what do you think? Should, you know, <laughs> what do you think of the uh, you know economist forecast for next year? Well, you know, I I've been a forecaster, Henry, now for about fifty years, and. Um, you know, I, I I spent the better part of my uh, career on Wall Street uh, as a forecaster, um, and uh, you know I got some right and I got some wrong, but uh, I got more right than wrong because I I never lost my job, which is something that, <laughs> yes. I, uh, that I can't say for um, uh, you know most of my competitors. Um, but what I've learned is you know. Um, Every year is full of surprises. And, um, you know, a year ago, you know, we, we had a view of the world that uh, certainly um, turned out to be much different than we thought uh, was the case at the end of uh, 2020. And I think that, you know, in looking out over the next year or so, uh, I think we'll be surprised at some of the changes that <clears throat> will occur relative to our expectations today. Um, but I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the United States and China. And uh, I think we both agree that this relationship is the most important relationship in the world. It needs a lot of work. It's in, it's in danger right now. Uh, this is the worst the relationship has been uh, since um, uh, the um, uh, the advent of um, the modern relationship began in the early 1970s, uh, when um, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger uh, went to China. Uh, it is bad right now, and so it is incumbent upon us to change. Uh, that dynamic. And if we don't do a better job than we have been doing, uh, I think a year from now, we will be uh, uh, in a more difficult place and will regret the opportunity that we have squandered. So this is an important juncture uh, in the relationship between our two economies. We can't just say, well, we've built a lot of um, connections between us, uh, that, you know, business has benefited and we know that. That's not enough to keep this relationship on track. We have to do better. We have to come up with a new approach. Uh, and um, 
I've tried to discuss with you some of my thoughts and ideas. I'm sure there are other uh, ideas and other people who have thought about this differently, but uh, we've got to uh, uh, put an end to this conflict before it is too late. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Steve. I think you, you, you outlined so well. I think absolutely, you know, Sino-US relations is the most important bilateral relation. That is not only going to impact today, it will impact next year, and it will impact us next 10 years or next half a century. So we have seen the, the, the lowest point probably in the last uh, past cent, half century. We need to work together to revive uh, to the, the normal relations and also make it beneficial to both countries and to the world. So once again, thank you, Steve, very much for joining us this evening and also thank our uh, audience uh, online. And we hope to see you again and hope to see you visiting CCG uh, when you come to China. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Henry. Steve. I look forward to seeing you again in person. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs> Bye.